Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm really, I'm really good. The sun's out. How could I be any other way? It's just a, a way to lift the mood, you know? Yeah, it really is. Feeling good. Can we get an ice cream after the show? Yes. Yes! Please. <laughs> I love ice cream. So today we are talking about pain in literature. From Virginia Woolf to Susan Sontag, writers have grappled with how difficult it is both to describe and understand the pain of others. Today we're going to examine that phenomenon, but also look at some of the writers who have captured the experience of pain in a unique and interesting way. One of those writers is Sinead Gleason, whose personal essay collection, Constellations, tells the story of a life in a body. We're very, very lucky to have Sinead with us here today. Octavia, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about her? Of course I do. Um, Sinead Gleason is a writer of essays, criticism and fiction. Her writing has appeared in Granta, Winter Papers and Gorse, and a story of hers will appear in Being Various, New Irish Short Stories, published by Faber in May 2018. She is the editor of three short story anthologies, and she's worked as an arts critic and broadcaster and has presented the book show on RT Radio 1 in Ireland. She lives in Dublin, and it was such a pleasure to meet her. Yeah, it really was. Um, So today we'll talk to Sinead more generally about the exploration of pain in literature. And finally, we will give our book recommendations. So join us for the next hour as we try to face this challenging universal experience. Sinead Gleason, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you. I, I love this podcast, so I'm really thrilled to be here. So thank oh, you. Well, thank you for buttering us up from the start. <laughs> we, we love compliments um, and we love your books. So thank you. we've asked you to start with a reading. Could you please set it up? Yeah, this is uh, one of the essays called The Haunted Haunting Women. Um, and lots of parts of Constellations are about me and lots of it isn't. Uh, and this is about two women that I'm related to, namely my grandmother and my great grandmother, who had very different lives to mine, um, growing up in poverty and growing up with no education, growing up living in tenements. Um, and I think about them a lot because my life is very different and better and my daughter's life will be very different and better to theirs life. So um, but there's also this sort of seam that runs through my family that um Maybe we'll get to it in this. Um, So I'm, I'm going to read The Haunted Haunting Women. I see women coming over the hills, walking down into the towns and cities, pulling coats with missing buttons tighter, balancing babies on worn hips, saving pennies and counting cents, not shaking off the boss's hand when it lingers too long. The multiple jobs or work turned down, rounding the corner with a buggy only to find a flight of steps, crisscrossing the supermarket aisles with stop, stop, stop asking me, wiping noses and undrunk cold cups of tea, pristine kitchens, lies without a spare minute to stare at the sky, fury simmering in their heads. I see one woman in particular, all the moments of her life piled up like bones, the countless actions, the days of her youth she recounts to us, the drip feed of her past. In the midst of all those addresses and moods and cigarettes, all those sighs and each way horse bets, she's embodied by two things, weeds and ghosts. It was spring and in the back garden, my grandmother pulled up dandelions from the lawn. There were never any flowers in this garden, save for this unwelcome yellow. Tearing up roots, pulling piss the beds from the soil, My grandfather records that she walked back into the house, leaving the sunshine over the coal shed and just collapsed. They'd shared a bed for 50 years and he knew her breathing, each rise and fall of it. But he'd never heard her breathe like this and not her pneumatic snore. 
My mother arrived and her brain, flooded with panic, dialed 888 over and over, wondering why she couldn't get through, why there was no calm, factual voice saying, emergency services, which service do you require? At the hospital, a doctor declared it a catastrophic heart attack. That morning, she'd smoked half a cigarette, extinguishing it with her bare fingers for later. As the paramedics worked on her, the upright blackened butt looked down from the mantelpiece. Towards the end of a person's life, it's said they become more rooted in the past, gravitating towards the beginning of their life as they approach death. In the weeks before her coronary implosion, she talked constantly of her parents. I'm going home, she kept saying. I read about Hades as a child and the river Styx, and whenever I think about people near the end of their lives, I am assailed by this image. I see her climbing into a small boat, sailing across the water to her parents, clutching an oar in her crabbed fist. She always told ghost stories, not the ones about spooks and banshees or bogeymen who'd grab you in the dark, but the ghosts she knew. You should be more afraid of the living than the dead, she said, in any situation. I knew she meant her father, but she took her time telling us the story. My mother still tells it. My aunts too. He worked as an insurance collector, but because of his height and demeanour, people assumed he was a G-man, a special branch operative working with the RIC, later the Dublin Metropolitan Police. He travelled around the city on a motorbike and one afternoon, while out on his usual rounds, he swerved to avoid a child and hit a lamppost. He was badly injured, but clung on for three weeks in a coma before dying, leaving Mary a young widow. She had four children and was pregnant at the time of the crash, and part of the overlapping ghost stories in my family includes the oddly prophetic line her late husband often said to her, I'll never leave you with the young baby. Grief triggered a miscarriage, followed soon after by the death of her youngest boy. She gave birth to ten sons in her life and only one grew up. What kind of quiet is there in a room after a baby stops breathing or never takes a breath at all? I wondered if she ever saw their ghosts, an almost football team of infant boys lined up in the shadows. No matter how nuclear or fragmented a life is, everyone fears its annihilation. The death of a parent, predeceasing a child, the arrival of illness, the events that are unutterable, those incomprehensible moments, the ones that happen to other people. The terror of these things, even the brief imagining of them, was enough for my grandmother. She lived with the ever-present possibility of it, and that was enough to darken her life. The family lived in the back room of a tenement in Dublin 8. To survive, my great-grandmother delivered babies and washed the dead, ushered people into the world and out of it, souls clean as a blank page and others heavy with a lifetime's weight. She had a second job as a weaver, spending hours on a loom, and would leave the tenement room to go to work, locking the door to keep the children safe. And that's when he'd appear. Oh, what a note to end on. <laughs> that was a beautiful reading. Thank you so much. Thank you. So to start, can you talk a little bit about why you called this book Constellations? I think there's a hint in, in the beginning of the book. You have this beautiful passage in which you state, I've come to think of all the metal in my body as artificial stars, glistening beneath the skin, a constellation of old and new metal. Yeah, that's definitely part of it, because a lot of what this book is about is is about the body and very specifically the female body. And in my case, my female body has not been that reliable at times. Uh, I've had a lot of uh, 
I suppose, pretty serious encounters with, with bad health. Uh, and some of that involved surgery. So within my body, there is quite a bit of metal, um, including a quite substantial hip replacement. And I've those sort of things become obviously part of you and they're embedded in you and they're part of who you are. But the stories around your illness and the things that happen to you physically are also about who you become as a person. And one of the things people talk to me about this book, oh God, you went through an awful lot and terrible things happened. And they did. But I also know that they, it made me into the person that I am. And I'm definitely more determined and I have less time for, you know, whining and things like that. But I, I definitely know that they're part of it. And another part of the, the, the there's two reasons for the book is called Constellations. And the other one is that I knew I wanted to write essays and I didn't want to write something that was straightforward and I see all the essays in this book as quite, anybody could read them standalone. You could just read one or two of them. You don't have to read the whole book. But I also can see, and you see this more when you get to the end of a book when you're writing on it, how uh, more intrinsically connected than they are, more than you think they are, even when you're writing about grandparents or you're writing about Frida Kahlo or you're writing about terrible doctors and surgery. I can see that there are links and uh, connotations and all sorts of ways that they join up together. So just as a constellation, is it, you know, Orion is a distinct thing, but then you've got you know, Bellatrix and, and uh, Beetlejuice and all these other stars that make a part of it. So they're distinct, but all part of the same thing. So that's partly that as well. Oh, and as you say, they're distinct, but they're, they're also distinct in style sometimes. And I love the way that, you know, you slip between the personal essay and then also poetry. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, was that your intention at the beginning or, or was that something that evolved as you were figuring out what you wanted to say that certain forms didn't feel right? Yeah, very much so, I think. I, I think part of it is me resisting the idea of a memoir. And we think of a memoir as something that's 300 pages and starts at A and goes to Z and all the chapters are the same length. And that didn't interest me because it didn't feel it right it would replicate or represent my experience. And as you can tell from this book, there's lots of things in it. There's also lots of things that are not in it. So uh, to mess around with form and to do something that was more fragmented and that could take a little bit more of a risk felt like the better way for me to get that across, I thought. Yeah, speaking of things that are not in it, um, I was thinking as I was reading this, mm. you know, a lot of these essays are very personal. Mm. And um, I think to to good effect, it, it I feel that yeah. I have gotten to know you and that you've been very revealing to me as an author in the best possible way. But I'm sure you had to set yeah. boundaries in terms of what you were willing to talk about and what you wanted to reveal about yourself. So yeah. um, can you talk, you don't have to tell us what you left out, but yeah. maybe about the process of deciding what you wanted to write about. Well, it's really funny. While I was uh, flying over here today, I just finished Tracy Thorne's um, book called Another Planet. And she talks about when she wrote her first book, which was about herself and uh, Tracy's notoriously quite quite private about her life and she said that a journalist said to her why did you write such a public book when you're such a, a private person and she said because you have control when you write a book yourself you decide what's in there and she said I know there's loads of personal things in there but I also know there's loads of things that aren't in there that I'll never reveal and don't even you know have conversations about sometimes so I think you get to decide you get to set your own boundaries in terms of how much will I reveal and I think a key part of it, particularly with the first essay, which was which is about a trip to Lourdes and surgery and bones and terrible doctors. And the first version I wrote of that was much more about the church and the church in Ireland and women's bodies. And it was quite heavy and dogmatic. And a friend who reads my work said to me, the, the story that nobody knows, because we all know that story, is the story of you. So you, I, I think I was deliberately almost hiding behind things in that piece. I was trying to hide myself within it. And I think if I thought that in any way, while the book was coming together, that some of it was too personal, I might have, I might have balked, I might have blinked, I might have started censoring myself. 
And you can't do that in the same way that I think as a writer, I don't think you should ever, well, I can't with this kind of work, think of the reader. Some people need that kind of flag in the sand of imagining somebody's going to read the book. But I think I'd scare myself to death if I thought somebody was actually going to read it. And I didn't realise that some of it was so personal until I get up and read it in the same way that there there are pieces in this book that I, I don't think I could read at events because they do feel, you know, so close to the surface for me. It's also, if you're not going to be truthful, it's not going to feel authentic. And there's no point in writing a book if you're going to um, embellish or you're going to hold back or you're going to withhold. Um, and the reader will know that and they and they won't forgive you for it, I don't think. I think that's absolutely right. And you, yeah, you can as a reader, you can mm. sense that, yeah. that lack of lack of bravery. Sometimes yeah. it is, isn't it? Yeah. Which I, I don't mean for that to sound as um, damning as it does. Yeah, but. It, it is a question of bravery, I think, sometimes, isn't it? Leaping into the unknown in that way. Yeah, and I and I, I can think about the, some of the, the work that I like. And I, when I talk to students about writing or I do workshops on, on the essay, I always say to people, you know, whenever you get fearful, think of the work you like that's, that's really raw, that really pushes itself, that really had to challenge itself to appear on the page and think of the risks that person took and how much you liked and engaged and got something from that work. So remind yourself that other people have done it and it's not always a terrifying thing, but if you're going to show up, you must do it with absolute clarity and absolute authenticity or it just won't. It's There's no point then, I don't think. Do you think distance between events and writing helps with that? Because you, you say um, in the book that you knew long before you wrote it that you were going to write it. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if there was something in, in the time that elapsed between that initial thought of, you know, I'm going to write about this. Yeah, I, th- I, I think in some cases, yes, particularly with the first essay, which is based around my kind of 13 to 17 teenagers. And I didn't write that for a long time. And again, part of when we talk about essays and the personal essay, which is only a prefix that's been added on a lot more in recent years. And as I've said many times, often about work by women. And I feel that if you're going to sit down and, and write something that requires you to, to negotiate with yourself, I find it, I figure things out when I write things down. And I knew I wanted to write about that experience, but wasn't sure how to say it or how to shape it. And again, that is a fear when you write it from your own perspective. Will this be interesting to anybody but me? And the whole idea with essays is that it, they are, they have to look outwards at the world. They have to be about something else. As I often say as well, the best essays are about, they're not just singular, they're about more than one thing. And often, whether I like it or not, I, I'm convinced an essay is about A and then it turns out to be about B. And that's how you find out what you want to write about by writing your way in and literally looking around at your own manuscript or document and go, what am I saying here? And I think we've it's been said many times about art and writing that we've, we write to figure things out and we really do. So some of these subjects obviously are about bereavement or grief or illness and they're difficult. And for me to figure out how I feel about them, not just on a, you know, reactive, superficial, that was a terrible time, but there must be more to it than that. Um, and I wanted to do that with some of those pieces. And yet, you know, this, the, the piece that was in The Guardian, the, the our mutual friend, that, that took so, so long. Um, so many false starts and so many abandonings. And because when there's other people involved, you have to get it right, especially if, you know, people's families are going to read it and it, it must have the right tone. It can't sound that like you've taken someone else's story and, and you're, you know, you're ventriloquizing in any way. 
Um, but I did feel that that wanted to be said because it, 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 it's also not just about somebody who isn't here. It's also about my, my husband and how he feels about it. And literally, we did have to stop telling the story of how we met because it was just too sad and it would it would silence a whole room. Um, so instead of telling it, I decided, why don't I put it in a book? Um, <laughs> but and then other things, I mean, the piece I mentioned to you about my daughter, that I think I wrote that in less than an hour one afternoon, you know, so some, some things come quickly. Other things require a lot of work. And I think, again, with the essay, there's a misconception that it is you writing your news or writing, trawling out of your diary or, or just, you know, regurgitating stuff from your life. There's an awful lot of craft in writing an essay and there's an awful lot of selection and concision and deciding, as you say, what goes in and what doesn't. And a craft, it is all about craft. So you could throw everything into it, but then it'll just be a load of words and information. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a good essay. You say this is a book much about the body and women's bodies in particular. It's also a book about pain. Mm. Um, And we've chosen that as our topic today because it's something that so many books both engage with but have trouble engaging with. And it's something we sort of wanted to tease apart. And I I thought you did a really good job in this book just thinking about pain and what is pain? How do we write about pain? Um, What do we do about pain? Um, And can we ever understand the pain of others? And, And I was wondering if... That was on your mind when you were writing as, as something you really wanted to prize apart um, in terms of your own experience. Especially. Yeah, very much so. And I, I've obviously had a lot of pain over the years, but there's a particular period that I write about in the book where um, I had had um, my son and I had had my daughter very close together. And about halfway through that pregnancy, my my whole hip replacement, which I have just or, well, it wasn't replaced then. The sur- surgery I'd had was just fell apart and I was on crutches. And I remember I could only sleep on my right side. I couldn't lie or sit any other way. And, you know, you have a pain or you sprain your ankle and it's sore and it goes away after a while. You have a headache, it goes away the next day, whatever it is. This was kind of constant for months. So there was never a moment where I wasn't in pain, no matter what I did or tried to do or medication I took. And then you start to realise what it must be like for people with, with chronic pain, because it's, it's the, the, the non-absence of it. it it's, almost, it's like a, a tinnitus type thing almost. You, you, you can't ignore it. It becomes a really unignorable thing. And as I say in the book, there's, you know, pain has no shareable fragments. You can't share it or tell. Even if you tell someone, they're still not going to feel what you felt. Um, and I just remember what that also does to you is not just as the location of your pain, is the idea of it affects your mood. It affects your sleep, it affects your appetite. You have to eat just to take painkillers, you know, everything else, all loads of other things go on around it. And it's the most distracting and the most boring thing ever. Nobody wants it. Nobody has any interest in pain. Um, and the reason why I wanted to write about it was almost as a challenge as well, because I do talk about the inexpressibility of it. It's very hard to, that's the McGill pain index. You know, is it hot? Is it searing? Is it stabbing? Is it whatever? Um, and if I have, if we all decide we have stomach pains, you know, kind of in some weird uh, non-convent situation, we're all synchronising in this room, we're not going to have the same. No matter what, it's never going to be the same and mine might be worse than yours. And I think we've just been conditioned to sort of often mask it with, you know, with taking drugs uh, and not addressing the, the, the side of it or the problem of it. But I, I find that it's it's one of those things that if people aren't familiar with pain, they don't realise how it, it can grind people down. And I... I did think for a while during that whole period before I got my hip replaced that I was going to lose my mind. You know, tiny children, quite mobile, always sore. And it just, it made me not want to go out. I didn't want to see my friends. It made it harder to work. You're never comfortable. And it's really distracting. And I I think a lot of what I talk about in this book is about illness in terms of how much it robs you of other parts of your life, Mm. whether that's the ability to exercise, the ability to walk up a flight of stairs, the want to go out and have dinner with friends. 
um, or even the fact that you're in a hospital, so you can't go anywhere. And I think that th- so though I, I that's why I run a mile from those things. I was back for a checkup last week and they were like, you can hang around. I was like, nope, here's my arm. Take the blood <laughs> off I go, you know, so I just kind of get really pan- watching the exits in the hospital whenever I have to go in for, for stuff. But yeah, because p- pain is, is it's a, it's a, it's an interruption. Um, it's invasive. It's intrusive. And um, yeah, I, I don't like it much. You describe it as a, a in that I think it is in that essay as a squatter in yeah. your bones, yeah. which I thought was incredibly evocative because yeah. it is that feeling of being invaded by something that you didn't ask for that you, doesn't belong and to no you. And you've no control over. And you have no control yeah. over exactly. Yeah, it, it it is that thing that it's there's nothing you can do about it, and uh, and you don't, and also you get bored of talking about I'm sore, I'm sore, I'm sore again, I'm sore again today. It's really boring, and you're boring people around, and you're boring yourself. Um, and when all you want for it is to be gone. And in, in, in my case, it was mostly fixable. I still have some ongoing issues, but I, I, I think I would have absolutely have gone completely crazy if that had never. And there are people who live with chronic, chronic pain all the time, and I don't know how they do it. Because, again, that's about medicating yourself, which is other side effects, which are long term effects. Um, but I find it. And I, again, at one point, I think I talked to a doctor who said to me, like when a lot of pe- doctors talk to people about pain, sometimes they ask them to draw it because the words aren't enough. It is an inexpressible. There isn't a language for it. And I'm just interested in that language about how do you articulate it when something is particularly to doc- And again, it's often doctors who are there to help you and make you better, but don't have any experience of it themselves. So where is the commonality? You know, how mm. will they understand what you mean? Well, I wanted to ask mm. you about that, because mm. as you mentioned, you wrote about Frida Kahlo, who, yeah. you know, her body of work is a body of pain also. Absolutely. And so eloquent yeah. and beautiful and massively um, important work, actually, about yeah. finding ways to articulate physical pain and living, like you say, with chronic yeah. chronic pain. Um, and I, I wonder if you could talk about what drew you to her work and, yeah. and your relationship with that work. Absolutely. I mean, I discovered her in, in my teens because I was also spending a lot of time, you know, with traction, bed bound, having surgery, being put into body casts, a lot of. So I, I related to her hugely. And also the fact that so much of her work is about turning the focus onto herself and her own body. It's very visceral. It's very graphic. It's very corporeal, her work. And I think that when I found Frida, it was like somebody articulating what I would, you know, only got around to articulating now in this book that she was saying that. I also think as well that sometimes with illness, there is an assumption that we feel pity for patients. We feel that they're, you know, that they're not themselves. They've been removed from their own lives. So they're just over here convalescing and not doing anything. And Frida was like, I'm not going to take to the bed and do nothing. So instead, you know, she had this, her mother got her special easel that she could paint with. She had eventually a mirror over, so she could literally paint herself, look uh, self-portraits. And I think she decided, uh, as did Joe Spence, who I also talk about, and Lucy Greeley, who are all in the same essay, that it's an essay called A Wound Give Off Its Own Light, which is a quote from Anne Carson, meaning that from all of this pain, those three women all decided, OK, my, my life's been interrupted and disrupted and um, I've been, you know, kind of uh, blindsided by pain and interrupted by illness, but I'm going to do something with that. And for me, Carlo was somebody who represented the physicality. Our illnesses are not the same, but we did have a lot of issues with bones and casts and again, being bed bound. And I just thought, well, she didn't sit under it. She turned, she literally did turn her, her, her pain into art. And I think, again, when I talk to people about this book, people want to tell me their stories after reading this mm. book. And I imagine that pre- Frida's articulation on the canvas of what it's like to have a, a, a you know, a problematic body, uh, a disruptive body, an ill body. A lot of people will take a lot of solace, even though it probably took a lot for her to do that. Um, but there's nothing else. I mean, if, I think it's something like 85 percent of Frida's work is self-portraits because that was her subject, the body, herself, her pain. 
um, and I, she's just someone I, I hugely admire. I, I went to the, I talk about going to the exhibition last year to see all of the objects. You see her medicine and you see the cast and you see her prosthetic leg. And I, I just it was very overwhelming for me to see all that. It just had always made, you know, even the fact that she decorated them again, the, the, the symbols of her sort of disability. She's like, I'm going to paint them lovely colours and paint dragons on them and stuff, you know. There's a, a, a wonderful discussion online uh, recently between Maggie Nelson, who I love, and uh, Bjork. And Maggie Nelson talks uh, about writing about. How do I not know about <laughs> I know. this? Oh, it's really, it's so brilliant. You have to read okay. it. It's really, really long. Two and Bjork's questions take twenty artists. minutes to ask. Um, but they're, but they're, her brain is incredible. Oh, she's amazing. Yeah. And she says something to Maggie Nelson about again writing about difficult subjects, and she said it's kind of like it's about hosting the unhostable. And I thought that was such a brilliant way of, you know, you can't run away from your pain, your body, your experience, your bad relationships, whatever it is. So you do have to host the unhostable, and what you can do with that, which I think is what Cal did is you can make art or you can take pictures like Joe Spence did or you can write wonderful words like Lucy Greedy did and as you said it's not just about pain but about women yeah women's pain and I came out of reading this collection feeling very angry about (laughs) about how women in pain are treated in our society yeah and it's 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 kind of it's been an ongoing thing and it seems to be so in, in my experience has, has mainly it's been with the medical world, which was male doctors, because my experiences with bones and hips was orthopedics, which was traditionally very male dominated. It's, I mean, it's a carpentry of medicine. It's very it's very mallets and chisels. And I, more than once I was told, you know, you're not a sore, as you say. I, I don't think that's hurting. Um, somebody cuts off one of my plaster casts at one point and I, I'm screaming as a teenager. My mother's with me and she's sent out of the room and I'm really upset. And when it's eventually revealed like a big cocoon, I have six giant um, scars on my legs, which I still have. But I was being told at, at, you know, 13, this isn't hurting you. This can't penetrate the skin. What are you complaining about? And that's kind of so I, I, I've always been now I've met a lot of very good doctors as well. But I have had that experience of just feeling that women aren't listened to. And you know, there's loads of stories. I think Leslie Jemison has written about this as well, that a man and a woman go to emergency and the woman is often given, you know, a sedative just so she won't keep talking about how, how sore she is. And the man is given proper painkillers and listened to. Um, and I think there is um, an, an inarticulation around that. Um, and it happens across, across, all across medicine. We had a, this talk radio show in Ireland and two weeks ago for the whole week they had women calling with terrible birth stories and again being dismissed at a very vulnerable moment you know you have half your clothes off you're about to give birth to a child you're in a lot of pain it's quite messy and people diminishing that and talking down to you and not believing you and so yeah so I I, I find um, that on the opportunity I get to talk to doctors I'm, I go on about this stuff a lot because it's I, we know it's difficult work they're overworked and they're overtired but empathy is something that it should and it thankfully is being taught more in medicine but we need to listen to people it's not about trying to a patient isn't solving a puzzle it's, they're not a jigsaw you need to listen um, and figure out what's going on um, rather than just trying to solve the problem you write very very um evocatively and incredibly i don't know it, i found the way you write about the experience of being a patient um very affirming because i've also been a patient everyone yeah. who's been sick has been a patient yeah. and what you describe is that lack of personhood you become yeah. a patient not a person anymore yeah. but i f- i found it also speaks to just the general state of being a woman <laughs> in patriarchy yeah because it's another version where people are trying to speak for you and yeah. people don't listen and make the space for your personal experience to take up the space that it should do um and you you write in in one of the essays i can't remember which one it is but where you talk about gynecology being um mainly 
stuff by men because it's the highest paid field. Oh, that's impolitical about hospital. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, I think I vaguely knew it, but I'd forgotten it. You yeah. reignited my fury about this. Yeah. That it's like... <laughs> they, they go where the cash is. They go where the cash yeah. is and the, yeah. that the cash is in women's bodies, but yeah. not for the women's bodies. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. It, it feels like the most immensely fucked up thing. Yeah. I I, I mean, I couldn't believe... And I, that, I, that conversation was happening, how meta can you get, with an Uzbek anaesthetist as I was having a gynecological procedure done in a hospital. <laughs> so I was like, I'm here. This is pretty hot, awful. And there's four people at the other end of me. So I might as well get some information for the book here while I'm doing this. And again, and in that same kind of situation as well, that was the start of last year. Another night that I was in there, I talked to a nurse and I was asking about the situation because this is obviously before the referendum in Ireland. And I was like, what is what is the situation? And she said, well, things happen in hospitals. We save lives. And if we didn't, more women would be dead. But of course, everybody has to talk and had to talk in code around the issue of reproductive rights and what happens in hospitals if somebody is bleeding to death or has sepsis or is, you know, going to die if they aren't given some life saving intervention. And the, and the secrecy and silence around that as well, that I just know, as you say, if this was something, it goes back to the much quoted Gloria Steinem line, you know, if men could get pregnant, you know, you could get abortions at lunchtime or abortion would be a sacrament. There's loads of variations on it. Um, if, 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 some, if this was something that interrupted, you know, the working lives of CEOs and businessmen and footballers and whatever it is, um, we wouldn't ever be having conversations about abortion. It would have been something that was legal in Ireland anyway um, a long time ago. And again, it is that is patriarchy in, in, in action. Yeah, and you, you spoke a little bit about Ireland in your answer. Um, mm. And I felt this was a book really situated in Ireland mm. um, and a book that really examined Ireland's relationship with women um, through through the lens often of Catholicism. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that yeah. and, and where you've come to in terms of how you feel about your upbringing there and where the country is in terms of its relationship with women. Uh, absolutely. And and it goes back to the, the piece I read, The Haunted Haunting Women, that Ireland has changed. In the last decade, it's a different country to it was for most of the last century. Um, and unfortunately, uh, it hasn't been a great place for women on multiple levels. And some of the stories, you know, were so colossal. They became, became news stories and people started to hear about them outside of Ireland. So, you know, unmarried mothers being sent to Magdalene laundries. There's been films made about that. Uh, mother and baby homes where women who'd gotten pregnant, girls who got into trouble, euphemistically, as they used to say, were often taken in. Um, babies were sold. Um, that happened to my own father. Uh, and it's kind of a place where there's a lot of fear around uh, women, a lot of fear around women's bodies and sexuality. Uh, contraception uh, was basically illegal until the 70s and there was you could get prescriptions. Um, we had the marriage bar in Ireland until the 1970s that if you were a woman, you worked in the civil service and you got married, no matter what your job, you had to give up your job. And that's like, I was born in the 70s. It's not that long ago. Um, so I feel that there's been a very crushing coercive and uh, deliberate attempt to keep women in place. We're having a vote in, in Ireland tomorrow and we we're meant to have a vote, not this time, on removing something that's still in our constitution that says w a woman should really stay at home because that's how she contribute to the state um, um, <sighs> e economically. So that wow. we are going to get rid of that at some point. So fast forward until the last couple of years, we were the first country in the world four years ago to vote by referendum for same-sex marriage. Uh, last year we had the repeal, which was a hugely emotional 
time for everybody, including myself, who went out and knocked on doors to ask people to believe women, to listen to us, to not judge other people, to, you know, even if you don't, even if you don't agree with abortion, would never have one. Don't make that decision for other people, no matter what the reason. And we all had to tell the stories at the doors of, you know, fatal fetal abnormality or rape or incest or whatever it is. And it shouldn't be those reasons. It should be whatever reason you want should be an, a good enough reason for you to want to have an abortion if you just don't want to be pregnant. So it was hugely emotional. This is the anniversary of it this weekend. Um, and, you know, I have a daughter uh, and I talk about going to vote on the day with her. And I basically had to spend the whole day trying not to cry because it was like this. I never thought I'd see that referendum in my lifetime because it's been so oppositional. And a lot of the people who are very vocal are very conservative. There are people who related to the church um, who, who preferred when women didn't have a voice, stayed home, had no contraception, had 12 babies, lots of them died in childbirth and weren't allowed to have, um, you know, life saving abortions. So it's changed a lot for a lot of people, but particularly for women. And I'm, I'm really glad. And like I say, I feel I feel the weight of that when I write about my grandmother and my godmother in this book, because their lives were really hard. And a lot of it was to do with having more children than they could afford to feed, having to work a lot, having to stay home because there's 10 children. And no one had childcare and there certainly weren't creches in inner city Dublin in the, the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, I feel that all the time. So I feel lucky and I feel that privilege that my life's very different and much better. And my daughters will be again. So, yeah, Ireland's much better place. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> Sinead Gleeson. <laughs> <laughs> it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Um, uh, we we loved your essay collection. I feel very, I feel very political after having this conversation <laughs> as well. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's <laughs> go burn shit. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, but but yeah, thank you so much for coming on today. It's, it's been brilliant and we really appreciate you coming. Pleasure. Thanks for the great questions. Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is pain in literature. And I think we need to start by talking about something that came up in our interview with Sinead, which is the inability of words to often express pain and especially express the pain of others. She talked about it a lot. A lot of writers have talked about it a lot. This writer that people seem to bring up most when they talk about this is Virginia Woolf. Um, she has this amazing essay on being ill in which she described the poverty of the language of pain. And she has this great phrase where she says, every schoolgirl who falls in love has Shakespeare done Keats to speak her mind for her, but let a sufferer try to describe a pain in his head to a doctor and language at once runs dry. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think it is true. And I think, I think also when you're dealing with being in pain, you're not in an articulate state. And so it's even more a moment where you might want to reach for the words of others to describe how you're feeling. Um, and if they aren't there, then then what can you do? You know, and I think that's why Sinead's work, where she's exploring that the pain index um, is so interesting, because, you know, obviously the medical establishment has tried to come up with a way to make this untranslatable experience as translatable as possible but when you're dealing with language as well you're dealing with the fact that the meaning of a word can be still quite ambiguous it can mean one thing in the mouth of the sayer and one thing in the ear of the listener and when you're dealing with something that needs treatment in quite a specific way like certain kinds of pain do it really gets to the philosophical questions at the heart of what is the role of language and how can we employ it 
to work for us and how does it get employed to work against us as well? Yeah, totally. Um, one book that I read that was really transformative for me in thinking about pain is The the Body and Pain by the theorist Elaine Scarry. Yeah, me too. It changed how I thought yeah, about it in a um, big way. And she makes so many important points about this, but one of the points that she makes that I that I really liked was that pain is so often expressed non-linguistically. It's grunts and shouts and cries, um, which makes it all the more difficult to understand. But also she talks a lot about the gulf between our pain and the pain of others, as, as you've just said, and, and how that divide is so difficult to breach. Um, it also made me think, if I may log roll for a moment here, of my own author's book, um, Murmur, uh, his name's Will Eaves, and in the novel he's writing about Alan Turing, and Alan Turing at the very end of his life when he's going through chemical castration, and he has this quote, pain is memory without witness or corroboration. It isn't real to anyone else, and that is what allows torturers, including governments, to be torturers. They can pretend it isn't happening because it isn't happening to them. Wow, e yeah, I got goosebumps. Ooh, Will Eaves, well, I got goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> Read murmur. <laughs> I want to. It sounds um, fantastic. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But also, it brings in the question of pain being something that either you experience or that is done to you, right? Like mm. that idea that torturers can be uh, at inflicting pain on a state level, on a structural level, or on a very interpersonal level, um, puts us right in this space of like I don't know like when you think of pain do you think of pain that is emerging organically from the body or do you think of pain that is being done to you by some external force I think of it as being um initially internal to the body organic to my body because I'm somebody who hasn't had that many violent experiences where other people have caused me physical pain what about you I don't know um I guess I think about it as both but maybe as women we tend to think of it as more of an internal thing and yeah. it's, and again it's something we talked a little bit about with Sinead is that women are almost expected in our society to be in some sort of pain and also when they are in pain they're not taken seriously and I think that's something that literature is starting to grapple with these essay collections written by women um, I think Notes to Self by Emily Pine is a really good example of of that, but um, this book asked me about my uterus by Abby Norman, which again is a book about being in chronic pain and what that actually means, and also how difficult it is for women to be taken seriously, and um, and I think also that psychologically internalized view of pain is is more expected of women. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and it actually reminds me of um, the fact that there is this association between pain and punishment, right? And the way that pain is meted out on women's bodies. You know, original sin, those very ancient, very damaging ideas that women deserve physical pain because they are somehow inherently sinful. But also linguistically, the word for pain actually derives from the Latin poena. I don't know if I'm saying that right. P-O-E-N-A, poena. I, I did not take Latin. I did, but I was sucked at it. <laughs> um, but it, the the word, the Latin word po poena means penalty or punishment. Um, so, you know, it's it's linguistically embedded that, that, that there is an idea of somehow something being meted out in pain. Um, and I think people who suffer immense amounts of pain, the very natural next question is why? Why me? It feels totally unjust if you, if, you know, the moments of intense physical pain can feel very, very unjust, I think. Um, yeah, I agree. And getting back to literature, um, I think all of these reasons 
are good reasons why it's so hard to write about pain convincingly mm -hmm. in, the, in literature because it is so complicated, because it is so specific to each person, because it's so hard to express it in language. And but I don't want this to be a show just about us talking about why it's difficult to write about pain. I think we should talk about books that that really try to talk about it and, and how they succeed. So are there any books that you're thinking about that you think do this really well? Well, it's interesting because I think that it's easy to make quite an arbitrary distinction between physical pain and psychological pain. And I don't. I don't draw a line between the two because I think a lot of psychological pain manifests physically. Um either in the process or in what happens ultimately if somebody takes their own life. Um, and so I was thinking of The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, which mm. I know you were thinking of as well. Um, that's one of the first books that really, really lives within the pain of itself that I think I read. I think I read it in my late teens. Um, and uh, and that made a huge impact on me. Um, and then I, I was also thinking about a book which I never finished, but I know you read, A Little Life, mm. which seems like a pain extravaganza <laughs> of many different kinds and I never finished it you know like I say I read the first part and then I kind of put it down and never picked it up again um, but I think it was a book the way that, that the discussions around it went was was talking about voyeurism and gratuity of pain and you know yeah exploitation I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that book brings up another issue when it comes to writing about pain, which is when is pain sensationalized? I really loved A Little Life, but I didn't, I felt conflicted about it. I loved reading it. And in fact, but by the end, I sort of had to, I think I said this before, I, I sort of had to switch my feeling receptors off as I was reading it because I found it so intensely upsetting and so relentless that I couldn't fully engage with it. I do think Hana Yanagihara had a project that she was trying to accomplish I'm not sure she accomplished it I'm not sure how I feel about the ethics of as you say that spectacle of pain but it was it felt like an important book for going to those places and asking those questions in terms of how willing we are to engage with somebody else's utter pain and despair mm, yeah and the question of suffering being something that has a capital on it as well you know that like that's a it's a trade object <laughs> yeah. in some in some ways and in, in the way that it's deployed in story storytelling as well like what is it that we get from hearing a story of somebody else's suffering it, it, it there's a transaction there that doesn't feel comfortable but is also incredibly humane in some way yeah and I think Susan Sontag has a lot of interesting things to yeah. say about that you know illness as metaphor this idea that if you give a character an illness, they suddenly become an object. They become a representation of something else and lose a bit of their humanity. And I think that's that's always a trap that it's easy to walk into in, in fiction, especially when you're making somebody suffer or being pain or be ill, um, is that they they lose a bit of their humanity. Yeah. And I think but I think the other thing that it's important to bring into the conversation is the fact that also healthy people don't want to read about being sick a lot of the time. So there's the kind of pain that feels romantic or cosmic or somehow deserved which can be symbolic and is somehow narratively interesting but I think there is also the reality that just reading about someone who's ill is none of those things you know we don't elevate that we elevate the pain caused in a terribly violent relationship or we elevate the pain caused by terrible structural um, inequality but because it feels like those stories have something to tell us. But what about stories about a body that is just decaying or a yeah. body that is ill? We don't want to go there. Yeah, I 
would like to say that I disagree, but I'm thinking about Still Alice, which is this book that everyone says is amazing. And it's about this woman who has Alzheimer's and I just don't want to read it. Yeah. I just don't want to read it. And, and I'm sure it's because I'm terrified of engaging with that. It's one of the reasons I don't like being in hospitals. You know, I, it's, it's hard. Um, and I think I really appreciate authors who are doing the good work to force people to read books about people who are who are sick and ill and in pain. Um, yeah, I agree. Because I think reader, you're right, readers are resistant to it. It's also, you know, talking about narrative. Um, I thought Sinead was so interesting when she talked about how boring chronic pain was. Yeah. And, I, and, and it's boring. And, and how monotonous. do you write a book about something that's boring and monotonous? It's mm, hard. It's really hard to hard. keep people interested. Yeah, so you're fighting this two, kind of two-pronged resistance, which is one about monocultural denial <laughs> and the other about the fact that also how do you make it interesting um I do think it's really difficult and I and I realized that the books that I was drawn to when we were thinking about this topic like I say they tended to be about psychological pain rather than physical pain um I think I find reading about psychological pain uh somehow feels comforting also mm. because it's something that there's a t uh, like one has a tangible way into I think do you think it's maybe because books are sort of a more psychological medium in the first place? Yeah, I think that partly. We've been talking a lot about novels, but also I just want to give a shout out to all of the wonderful memoirs and personal essays recently that have explored writers' experiences of pain in some way. So, of course, you know, Sinead, who we just interviewed, um, I was thinking of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, which was his memoir um, published uh, posthumously about uh, his experience being a surgeon then being diagnosed with cancer, um, The Noonday Demon by Andrew Solomon about depression, Brain on Fire by Susanna Callahan about um, encephalitis and her experience going mad because of this condition. So I think people are really, maybe that, maybe the personal essay is actually a form that really works for this exploration. I think there's a reason why I had such an easier time coming up with these books rather than novels. I yeah. don't know what you think. Yeah, because there's a proximity in the experience. I think maybe it's something to do with the fact that we're more willing to hear an, a, a, a truthful um, description of this, like a real life experience, than we are to receive it from a, an imaginary character. I don't know if it's something to do with that. Like the proximity of the experience from a personal essay is you're being told the story by the sufferer of the pain. So there's a narrative around it because they've either recovered or they are finding ways to cope with it or maybe. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think it unfortunately gets back to the power of a true story. Yeah, but also maybe one of the things in that is because it's not symbolic when it's a real person. Whereas we're going to read sim symbolism into it in a in a fictional context. Whereas in reality, when you're listening to someone describe their experience, you're not secretly sitting there thinking like, oh, this is a symbol of, uh, I don't know, your solipsism in this yeah. particular scene. Yeah. You know, you're just I like, oh my God, that experience sounds really hard. I'm having empathy for you. Yeah, um, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, and I think you've gotten to the the kernel of... Took me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't. No, it didn't. No, but yeah, no, I think there's something in it. Yeah. Totally. So let's talk about our books that we want to recommend about pain. What's yours, Octavia? Well, like I said, um, mine is, yeah, more psychological than physical, I suppose, in what it's describing. But um, And I chose it partly because of that, because I want to just reiterate that I don't think the dividing line we have between these the mind and the body is useful or helpful because a lot of pain can begin psychologically and manifest physically. 
Um, but also if we're talking about pain, we're talking about suffering and suffering doesn't only happen in one form or another, right? Mm. Um, so this book is called Good Morning Midnight by Jean Reese, which I think I mentioned on the show, but probably about four years ago. So I think it's okay to bring it back out. I don't um, remember you mentioning it. If okay, that makes good. you feel better. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think it chimes with a few really important issues that have come up in, in this chat, but also in our conversation with Sinead. Um, It's a short, melancholy book, and it, it really explores psychological pain, grief, trauma, and the isolation that these things cause, but also then compound. Um, and it's about this character called Sasha Janssen, who's an English woman who returns to Paris after being away for a long time. And she's financially unstable. Her life is very precarious. She's struggling to process everything that's happened to her, including a failed marriage and the death of a child. Um, and she, she becomes an alcoholic. She drinks. Uh, she takes sleeping pills. She finds herself completely adrift and, and desperately trying to manage the pain that she's feeling. Um, its descriptions of alcoholism are really, really intense and and very, very honest and powerful. Um, but the other reason I bring it up is because it wasn't a successful book initially. Critics said it was, quote unquote, depressing. And I think this gets at something. Um, it's a book about individual sickness, but it's also about a very sick system and a system that pushes women out and doesn't listen to them and doesn't make space for them. And I think on both fronts, these are the sicknesses that are healthy a world that imagines itself to be healthy doesn't want to dwell on. Oh, that sounds amazing. I've never read any Jean Reese. Wow, I think you'd love her writing. I, I would love I, it to. might be a little florid for you in places, but I, I think you would. I think you'd like her intent. Her voice is very powerful. I Yeah, it, and it sounds like this would be a good place to start. Yeah, I would recommend this. Yeah, I think this is more unique than... I, I enjoyed White Sarcastle Sea, but this is the one I go back to. Mm. Well, I'm going to recommend the last book that Susan Sontag wrote, which is called... This is such a great book. <laughs> yes. Uh, regarding the Pain of Others, which was published in 2003. Um, it was a book I was assigned in college, as I, I imagine is the way many students encounter it. But it really changed a lot of things about the way I think about art and representation and pain. Um, so it's it's more of a book-length essay than a book, really. But um, in it, she shows just how difficult it is to understand or communicate the suffering of others and how the visual representation of suffering is not so much a means of provoking empathy a lot of the time, but actually a means of just making us desensitized to suffering and and maybe even inciting violence. I mean, it's, a, it's not a very hopeful book in that way. Um, I think you can possibly make the same argument about words, and she doesn't necessarily go there. It's often seen as a a companion volume to On Photography, which is another one of her very famous works. But I, I think what it does is makes you think about all art and the limits of empathy and how careful we need to be when we depict suffering. Um, and, I, you know, Sontag, of course, is just such a brilliant thinker, such an uncompromising thinker. Um, and really... You know, she's a theorist, but she's a theorist that it's genuinely a pleasure to read her sentences. Um, she's a I, theorist, very yeah. grounded in the real world. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I would really recommend that anyone pick this book up, even if they're not studying literature um, or visual culture. Um, mm. It's just a really, really important book. here with Octavia Bright and also Sinead Gleason to give our monthly book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? 
as always, I would love to. Um, I'm recommending a really fantastic novel which I read recently called Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl by Andrea Lawler, who I had the enormous pleasure of interviewing the other night. And they're an absolutely brilliant person and have a lot of fantastic things to say about life and sex and love and literature in general. Um, and the book is absolutely extraordinary. It's really, really energetic. It's full of sex. Um, it follows the adventures of Paul Polidorus, who's this kind of picaresque hero slash heroine. And they're able to shapeshift between the sexes at will um, and there are these amazing descriptions of, of the way that the body changes and they can swell their body to massive masculine proportions or very dainty feminine proportions and everything in the middle and they're really this character that their life is totally driven by pleasure and uh, a want to experience everything available to humanity basically um, and so it starts off in this very riotous way romping through queer America in the 90s and like diving into all these different countercultural experiences um, and then it, it kind of gets a little bit darker, of course, because of the time it was written in. So the spectre of the AIDS epidemic kind of appears and it has some incredibly poignant and very universal things to say about the ways in which we code switch in relationships and that the ways in which we respond to people around us can change the shape of our personalities, not just our bodies and the um, after effects of that kind of thing. Um, and, and the ways that when we're young, we mold ourselves into the expectations of others and can do ourselves quite a lot of harm uh, in the, in the in the mix but it's yeah it's beautifully written it's very funny it's very caustic and witty there's some great mixtapes in there um some zine ideas like it's 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 fully immersed in the cult counterculture of its time it's very fluid it's just yeah it's fun and hot and naughty and great sounds amazing yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like orlando yeah. yeah well it was very much inspired by orlando okay. yeah I can't wait to read it. Yeah, yeah you I, yeah, you should both read it. Sounds super it. hot. It's very hot. The sex is some of the hottest sex yeah. I've I've read. And I've read quite a lot of sex sexy books and it's yeah. It nails it. Good. I've read quite a lot of sexy <laughs> books. <laughs> it's true, man. It's true. Um, Sinead, could we have your recommendation, please? Yes, I'm going to pick something that's just been published. And I feel that because we've been talking about Ireland and politics and aspects of the body, that this would be a really good one to pick as well. Because something else that's happened in Ireland, apart from all the um, social and cultural changes, is that thankfully Ireland is catching up a bit more on the UK in, and becoming a much more multicultural place. And in the elections that are happening this week, there's lots of people, new Irish people from Nigerian backgrounds, Brazilian backgrounds, Polish backgrounds starting to run. So it's finally starting to be less white and less monotheistic, which is a good thing. And out of this has come a brilliant young um, Irish Nigerian writer called Emma Dabiri, who's just written a book called Don't Touch My mm -hmm. Hair, uh, which is about uh, the, the politics and the cultural uh, signification of being a person with uh, black hair um, and how it's the assumptions that are made about it, uh, the difficulties they can cause um, how you sort of navigate. But of course, the book is not just about hair. It's about navigating the world as as, uh, as a woman who isn't white skinned, uh, who doesn't look like other people, especially in a country like Ireland. So it's a very political book and it looks at colonialism and it looks at gender. Um, it looks at Ireland and the changes again that we've talked about that are happening. Um, I talk a little bit about hair in, in my book and I'd, I'd love to talk to Emma. We've said we were going to have a chat about it. Uh, just the idea that the women's hair is a very codified and often sexualised um, thing that they can be judged, you know, whether you're wearing your hair up or wearing your hair down or wearing it in certain styles. Um, and obviously Emma's book is a deep dive into something that is much more political um, and much more about... Uh, a world that's changing and, and, and Ireland changing and about the idea that if you are a, a woman, 
yeah, you're, you're fair game for comment, for the way that you look, for your approachability, for the things that might be said or done to you, for, for being dismissed, for, for not being listened to, as we've said. Um, and I think it's, um, so she, she just seems to go through, I've been reading it, and she, she just hits all sorts of countries, places, ideologies. Uh, there's loads on music and culture and acting. And again, the, the visibility of some very high profile people um, who, you know, just, and the, exotic, the exoticization of, of that can happen to women of colour about the way they look or the hair that they have. Um, and even like trying to get products for your hair, all this kind of stuff that none of us, that's not our experience. We don't know anything about it. So I'm learning loads and I find it utterly fascinating. So it's just been published by, Alan Lane, who are, who are part of Penguin. And it's just, it's really, it's like a brilliant piece of history. It's like social history. I'm really enjoying it. I'm desperate to read that book. Yeah, I've heard so many so great good. things about it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm really glad to hear you recommend it. That's great. So I am going to recommend a book called Trust Exercise by Susan Choi. Yeah, Yeah, which you actually... <laughs> Everybody's rec- raving about this book. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah, I've heard so many good things about it. And actually the first ever person who told me to read it was Octavia Bright. Okay. So Yes, it was. I'm <laughs> so glad. I'm sorry to take your recommendation from you. You can steal it, honey. I knew also that you would love it. It's such a carry play book. It is a very carry play book, yeah. In in every way. And I'll explain why, perhaps. But without giving too much away, it's about an all-consuming romance between these two students at a performing arts high school. They fall sort of deeply and desperately in love. Um, It's also about their relationship with their teacher. But what this book does is that it lulls you into a false sense of security Um, And you think it's going to be a coming of age story about a romance between two students. And then it takes an incredibly dramatic, drastic turn in the narrative that makes you question everything that you've read before. And not only that is a sort of meta commentary on truth and memory and who gets to tell a story and what stories mean. And, you know, I think, you know, metafiction can can be cringy, but this is not. This is it feels real and interesting and doing different things than than other books started, that have attempted to It started sending like conversations with friends and you said that two students who kind of fall deeply. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I think you could put it in dialogue with Sally Rooney in really mm. interesting ways. Definitely. Um, it, it feels like a similar kind of voice yeah. as well. But um, I just I just loved it so much. I, I think she's a really good storyteller and she's a great writer, but she's also, it's a novel that thinks deeply about what, what it means to write a novel um, right. and that's why yeah, it I've, all I've my seen boxes. so much love for it online mm. people raving about it yeah yeah I okay. really loved it and Have and it's it interesting because I I really hadn't heard of Susan Choi before she has published a few novels yeah I think it's her fourth isn't yeah, it yeah but um this is the first one that's really she's American um and it's the first one that really people seem to be talking about on both sides of the Atlantic so um I, I would really recommend it it's published by Serpent's Tale here That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewees, Sinead Gleason, Roy and Paula at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on NTS.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at LitFriction. You can also get in touch with us by email litfriction at gmail.com. Yes. We'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.